When Gordon Gallup Jr. went about inventing the test for basic self-awareness, he couldn't have anticipated the impact it would have on the scientific community. He was, after all, just a graduate student trying to complete his homework for a psych class. Gordon stood in front of the bathroom mirror, face shiny with shaving cream, trying to imagine an experiment that would satisfy the assignment criteria. That's when he began daydreaming about the self-perceptions of other animals. If Gordon stood a 500-pound gorilla on a wet bath mat beside him and frothed its chin with shaving cream, would the gorilla recognize itself in the mirror? What about chimpanzees? Would a chimp make a funny face at itself like a child? Would an orangutan pop a zit? What would pass through our primitive cousin's mind? faced with a reflection for the first time. Most animals lack the basic self-awareness to even process what a mirror is. Cardinals and Siamese fighter fish will identify the reflection as an invader and attack it. But what about animals with high social intelligence, chiefly those in the great ape family like chimps, gorillas, and humans? To say Gordon's homework met the professor's criteria would be an understatement. His mirror test was given the rubber stamp in 1970. Instead of shaving cream, the first chimps set in front of the mirror were marked with non-toxic red dots, painted on their foreheads while they slept. The chimps would wake up, shake off their grogginess, and discover that a mirror had been left in their cages while they napped. The chimps figured it out pretty quickly. Although their awareness came in stages, sometimes over the course of several days. First, they tried to fight their reflection or flee from it. Young chips especially would see the invader in the mirror and run towards their mothers. Then, after playing a hesitant game of peekaboo with their reflection, the chimps would recognize the animals in the mirror was them. And then they moved to the third face, making faces and examining their genitals. Toddlers, by the way, mimic this response. About half of all two-year-olds can recognize themselves in the mirror and point at a red smudge on their forehead, and the silly faces they make are equally as cute as the monkeys. If the mirror test holds any water, a self-aware animal should be able to recognize the red dot on their bodies as other. Then, recognizing something that doesn't belong, try to correct it, usually by rubbing their forehead to get the paint off. In the decades since the mirror's test inception, dozens of animals have been dubbed self-aware, at least on a superficial level. Manta rays, magpies, ants, and even some fish have tried to scrub away the pesky red dots on their forehead. But the true depth of this supposed awareness remains dubious. Can a magpie, who totally lacks neocortex, experience self-reflection? Or are they incidentally preening for bugs when they find the red dot? Likewise, animals should, should pass on the self-awareness test with flying colors frequently fail. Giant pandas, who are so clever they'll fake pregnancy to get more food from zookeepers, 
will attack mirrors. And in the now infamous mirror test, two-thirds of the elephants failed at self-awareness out of boredom or disinterest. Gordon Gallup himself, now a research psychologist in his 80s, holds that only three animals have consistently demonstrated self-awareness. Chimpanzees, orangutans, and humans. He does not exclude other animals from self-awareness club. He only suggests those are the only animals predictable enough that we can say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they recognize themselves in the mirror. Why is it so important that we make this distinction about neurological self-awareness? The self-awareness we're concerned with has more to deal with our internal values, our desires, and predicting our emotional reactions, especially our reactions. Lectures about the hippocampus are fine for facts, but if you want to grow as a person, give me drama. Joseph Campbell captured it best when he penned the words, people forget facts, but they remember stories. In theater and drama, characters always find themselves drawn to the mirrored moments of self-doubt. Or in Hamlet's case, a skull, which serves the same purpose. That's because as far back as Greek tragedies, human knew the most valuable answers weren't found in tree leaves, tides, or storms. The most powerful prediction you can make is knowing how you will react in a storm. Then train yourself to have the optimum desired reaction instead of responding on pure animal instinct. To master self-awareness, there's no need to put shaving cream on your face or dots on your forehead. You won't find a cute column-by-column -column personality test to sort you into a category. The world has already been testing you since the day you were born. Gun to your head, just out of percentage, how many of the people um, who you have, like people who have given speeches that you've mentored where like they talk about knowing themselves and, you know, understanding their reactions and, you know, they're, they give speeches about like they're going to a wedding and they're going to give the best man speech and, you know, they're, they're going to be practicing lawyers and they're going to be doctors and things. How many of those people who claim to have self-awareness do you think were actually self-aware? I think that the more intelligent they are, IQ-wise and education-wise, the less self-aware they are. <laughs> the less self-aware. Okay, why do you think that? It just seems like when you get with the, you know, the uber-intelligent people, they, they're somewhere on that autism spectrum, every single one of them. Yeah. And they, they usually have a social link that's missing. Okay. They have, they have a hard time connecting with their emotions, and, and that's hard when you're writing speeches because uh, every great speech is going to instill get bring out emotion in yourself and, and somebody else. So that's the challenge I have. What percentage do you think it is with you? I, I think it's interesting – uh, okay, so my instinct is high. Like, I actually usually think it's about 50-50. But I, now that you say that, the the most educated, intelligent people we've, you know, mentored or I've mentored, I'm realizing that um, there's like a, a selection bias or a selection error 
because we're interacting with people who they need help. By definition, they're going to a place where you learn how to public speak. So they're desperate. They already, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, they, they know they need something. Desperate sometimes, yes. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they need this to change. They need to get better, Yeah, which is a great place to be. Right. That's that's the um, hard part when you, you know you know what you want to do, you just don't know how to do it. it. It's hard. It takes it takes a while to understand what you're not good at, right? It takes a while. Right. You talked to me about this years ago. Um when we start a new activity, if we didn't get that attention or that dopamine, whatever it is, in the beginning that they, oh I'm good at this or I'm a natural at this, if we didn't get that initial pat on the back we might not continue to doing things we might get discouraged you know so so, so some foolish optimism or childlike <laughs> interest in things is okay in the beginning right there's you don't have to be um unself-aware to start new activity in fact there is a natural learning curve to everybody learning a new skill where your gains come fast at the beginning uh, I, I don't remember which episode we covered it on but there is there is an actual like up, down, up curve where you start something new, you feel like you're good at it because you're getting better fast, and then suddenly you see people who are amazing at it, and you realize how long it's going to take for you to close the the gap of the last twenty percent. Uh, to to be, to go from good to master is a you know like the ten years worth of work, and then you suddenly feel like you're bad at it. That initial feel good. That doesn't make you unself-aware. I, I think it just means that you're like, you're, you're optimistic about it, foolishly optimistic, whatever it is. In, our, in this case, it's speechcraft. So th- the reason I asked that is, is I wanted to start with, you know, we interact with a lot of highly educated, highly intelligent people. And frequently I find that when you dig below the surface, they all appear self-aware, every single one of them. Everybody I've mentored... By the way, not being self-aware isn't an insult. We are not, you know, we're not we're not being rude to the people we've mentored. Far from it. We're saying that um, we've been lucky to find a lot of people who are able to be self-aware and appear self-aware, like they've cultivated their LinkedIn and their Facebook and their outward self-appearance and their their social standing. Everything about them is a neon sign that says, "I am self-aware." And when you talk to them, they admittedly are not self-aware. And that's okay. So there, there's a, a woman who, who writes about this. She's a doctor, and she helmed a study, and her name is Tasha Urich. And their study found that 95% of people claim they are self-aware, that believe it through and through. They're like, I know myself. I understand my own reactions. I know, you know why things happen to me the way they happen. And her study found that... Um, 95% of people think they're self-aware. Only about 10 to 15% of people are self-aware, like, like, you know, demonstrably. Not to muddy this up, but how much of this do you think is, I think there's a perception for especially high achievers that all they need is to get some confidence or get a little confidence back. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 isn't, it isn't really a, it's, a, it's more of an overcome. Uh, I'm, I can beat this. I can defeat this. I can do this. I can do anything. Look at all the other things I've accomplished. When being self-aware is really being self-aware is being brutally honest with yourself, and right. it's something that's took, taken me a long time to take. And I got some criticism on some TV commercials I shot some um, 
voiceover work I did. And it, it hurt me today, and I thought, why does that still bother me? If I consider the source. It's not somebody that I respect or has any experience in this. But it's still, I still have that shield up, Joe, that anything that's said that's perceived as negative affects my confidence and my and my own self awareness. Right. It's still an it still feels like an attack. Like like anything that you do creatively that somebody says, you know, it's it could improve or it needs work or something, it can still feel like it is toward you, not toward the thing you're doing. And we have that when we, when we work with people, right, Joe? A lot of these people are very, very high earners and very educated and they're not to, used to being told that they're not doing it right. And sometimes right. they don't like that we can we can talk in their language just like they can. They're shocked. <laughs> right. Well, I Okay, so our our not to get too far away from um the subject. Those people we're talking about the the high achievers who can be self-aware and they look at self-awareness as an achievement. They look at it like a goal or a benchmark that they are it's a badge on their scout sash that they're going to be wearing. Self-awareness is um, we talked about the mirror test just now uh, in our narrative. We talked about how there are three animals who supposedly pass the mirror test, and it's a fluke. Um, so this this episode really is just going to be about ants, elephants, and magpies. And I know we already covered this in the narrative, but I just want to talk to you about it, Todd, because I want to I want to discuss individuals. Um. What we're talking about right now is probably either the magpie or the elephant. The elephant is a person who, I mean, like it is actually the animal, obviously. The animal does this. But it's somebody who is very intelligent, emotionally deep, very capable. Like like elephants are geniuses of the animal world, basically. Their brains are huge. They're socially complex. They carry around the bones of their dead when they die. Like they're they're very deep animals. They can paint but they don't give a shit about the self-awareness test. They they don't like they look in the mirror, they don't care if it's them or not. They don't bother with like trying to get like a, a mark off their head. Uh, they can they could probably tell it's them, but they don't show that it is. Um so to me, what we're talking about right now, um usually when we encounter somebody who we are trying to mentor and um you know, they they take criticism badly. It's hard for them to look at themselves. Um, they, you know, they they are treating self awareness like it is an accomplishment, not like it's a lifelong practice. Those, to me, are either elephants or magpies. Magpies pass self awareness the mirror test because, like, it's accidental. They're preening themselves. Basically, they will use the mirror to do it, but they're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about like that bug on them or that spot on them. Like they're not they're not reflecting. They're not playing around in the mirror. They're just using it briefly. And so they're accidentally self-aware briefly. For all those people who are not bird enthusiasts and bird watchers like Joe, a magpie is a bird, which I did not know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Joe, Joe throws that around like it's, some, yeah, <laughs> like it's a squirrel or a pigeon. <laughs> right. <laughs> but a magpie is a very cute little bird, real smart yeah. bird, a self-aware bird. <laughs> so... um. The elephants that we that we mentor, um, a, a real world example of this that we're going to get into. Um, Todd and I are working on a book, and the one that has come up in our episodes and the one we write about as the example of the elephant is William Citus, the smartest man on earth. Um, That's right. Who was so incredibly hunt, hunt. smart? Yeah, go ahead. 
100 point IQ higher to 150 points higher than Albert Einstein. Right. Like he, he was magnitude smarter than anyone who's basically existed. And what was it? He, he learned like seven or eight languages before he was five and like could do calendar calculations in his head as basically a toddler. Lectures, le- lecturer was his big um, feather in the cap was being a lecturer at Harvard at 11. Being grilled by seasoned 20-year tenure um, professors in their own field. And he stood right. up, stood there and, and stood up to them, dressed in, as like a little boy, you know, like, like, right. like he is. Uh, he's, he's literally not wearing his big boy pants. He's 11, and, like, he's answering questions about, I think his lecture was on four-dimensional bodies. Um, so this is our perfect example of an elephant because he was as smart as you can create a human and he, like, the things that terrorized him in his life were things that self-reflection would have fixed. Um, how he appeared to other people. Uh, wearing clothes that were too young for him. Uh, being chased by his Harvard peers, who were very, very brilliant, like, equally smart. He, he ended up, uh, I think it was like Buckminster Fuller went to school with him. Like, he knew and interacted with people who were the same gauge of intelligence as him, like, the same caliber, it's just that he lacked the self-awareness to get along with anybody. And that just really would have taken a couple of moments of reflection and realizing, how am I reacting? You know, is it, is it you know, is my reaction to other people in line with reality? You know, what am I missing? The William Sidus thing, I kind of, anytime somebody has a tragic end to a, to a, all the potential in the world. I mean, Sidus with his with his IQ and his r- upbringing, he was bred to um, solve a lot of the world's problems. He had the brain to to invent things that would make our lives better and save people's lives. And so, going back, you always think something terrible happened in his childhood, and he was you know abused or. But he was really sheltered, and he was brought up in a very positive environment from the day he was born. He had two very brilliant parents, and they knew. They're breeding a little genius, and they talked to him in complete sentences when he was a baby. Um, they taught him to read. They they were all in on branding him as this boy genius, and it worked. So he became right. like a child star for intelligence, which is funny for us to think about nowadays in this uh, reality TV Kardashian world we live in. But actual rock stars were scientists. Right. Yeah, he was he was born during the electricity war between Edison and Tesla. And so like there were so many expectations on scientists and child stardom didn't exist in the 1890s to 1910s. Like it it they didn't have TV. So their child stars, you know, the tabloids had just been born and child stars were, you know, the children of scientists and geniuses and and kids that could recite poetry and like do math in their head and like you know the the boy that could like beat chess masters william yeah, it's fascinating. Was, yeah was this boy genius and they're like oh yeah you're our biggest child star we're picking you because you are the smartest well and then their lives are limitless right if they have the fame and they have the brains what can't they do and, and okay so to get into the tragedy we'll we, we will spoil a little bit 
Um, if you look up William Sidus, a lot of people online have written about him. He's you know, very widely covered because he is such a phenomenon of genius because he like he left academia in his middle age or early middle age. He, he abandoned teaching. He abandoned everything about science and math and everything he loved. And he just became a recluse who worked menial jobs like that's how he ended his life. And he died early from high blood pressure, effectively. But the strangeness and the irony to me is that speaks of self-awareness so much because he was one of the few people in academia who could have had access to the studies about high blood pressure. It was becoming well known because the president right then was dying from the exact same thing. In fact, the he- um, the the brain hemorrhage that killed FDR was what killed William Sidus. So, like... The amount yeah, no of way. self-awareness that was lacking yeah. because he didn't even pursue the new diets and the medicines that were coming up for high blood pressure. Like, like he, he the, should have been yeah. aware of it and he should have ac- had access to that understanding. And this is not somebody who's living underneath the rock. This is someone who's living in Boston. You know, his dad died of a similar thing. Blood pressure's known about. The FDR yeah. was going through the same thing. The president, the, the most famous president in the world, the world has ever known was going through it. Right, his dad and, he, and the he, president die from it. <laughs> and he was a, I don't know, what do you call it, someone who reads everything. <laughs> I mean, they right. don't even know how many books he wrote, Joe, because he ghost wrote all of them. They guesstimate 700, but they don't know. They know it's a lot more, but there's no proof. There's no record. Right. Boston College Medicine is one of the best in the world. Understanding is coming out of, like, literally the colleges he's reading from and attending and he almost willfully ignores it and and dies from the same thing that killed his father. It's that that to me is okay. Now we kind of like if you don't mind, I'll turn that microscope back on the people we mentor, the the hyper smart politicians, lawyers, uh, um high achievers in tech. And the the amount of times that the people I mentor turn around a, a, a good measure for this by the way. If we're being so vague about self-awareness it's because it really is almost like a philosophy slash practice slash discipline but the hallmark of it uh according to these studies is to ask what instead of why um instead of william Sidus asking why am i being picked on he should have asked you know what could i do that the other students at this college wouldn't be angry at like like what could i do differently to change my appearance what could i do differently to like what you know what am i currently doing to improve my awareness what could i be doing for my my blood pressure my health that question that what instead of why so few people ask it apparently less than 95 percent of people ask it and i am definitely guilty of of not asking what very often i i do you do that thing where like you get fired and you ask why me Oh yeah, any kind of relationship or anything that ends, I'm, I'm always surprised. Even though I, I bought and paid for all my pain, right. <laughs> it should be fairly obvious. And on the William Sidus thing, he he enrolled in after he did his lecture at at Harvard at eleven. He enrolled in there at twelve. He was his full time student, and in his own words, he was bullied mercilessly. I mean, he was chased, he was beaten. Um, he never kissed a girl. He never had any. He didn't have any friends. But to me, it kind of um, peaked at his unpopularity in school when his parents were called because the other students, these Ivy League rich kids, were going to get him. 
and what the what that meant was they were going to kill him. So right. he got under people's skin to the point that <laughs> it, 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 he was in danger, and, and he still was not changing. He still wasn't self-aware to say, okay, what could I do? You know, nobody should have this much hard time getting along with people who, who should, for, for all intents and pur- purposes, are his tribe. Some of the great thinkers in the world, and at least in our country. Right. And instead of asking that question, instead of looking in the mirror and seeing a spot and changing it, instead of asking what he he did, what an elephant does, he pursued his own interests. He, he didn't care. He went back to what he was doing, which is studying for languages and math. That was his dig. Like, that was that was his jam. And that, to me, is the reaction that most of these high achievers that you and I mentor, that's what I see, is usually when they have a, uh, you know, a run of bad luck or they're on hard times, they are used to achieving. It's weird for them to not get those badges and medals. And so instead of asking... You know, what could I, you know, what could I do? You know, what about me should be changed? You know, do I fit this mold? You know, instead of asking the what questions, they ask the why questions. They ask, why me? You know, why are they firing me? Why are they, you know, uh, attacking me? Why am I being chased through the courtyard by students? (laughs) The elephant is asking, you know, why am I looking at this mirror? Why is there a spot on my head? I'll just go spray myself with mud. Like they, they go back to doing smart things. They don't go back to reflecting in a in a progressive way and also with some of our corporate i guess you call them you know mentees or clients or whatever a lot of times when there's industry changing in in professions and stuff i I do find there's a lot of resume reading and i don't know what you call it i guess you call it does everyone know how great i am kind of thing and that can be hard to it can be hard to kind of calm those fires down a little bit that you're not as valuable now as you were in your prime in that industry you know <laughs> i don't know the best way of saying it i think i think the other the, the overall approach to um salary negotiation is get everything you can but you, you have to know what your worth is too right and be realistic right it's it's not just i mean like when we talk about asking what one of the big questions is, you know, what am I doing here at a job? Like, what value am I bringing? You know, what are people expecting of me? What do they want from me? How soon do they need it? Like, like there are so many questions that go into that. What people only really seem to ask themselves is, you know, uh, um, why are they compensating me and how much can I get? So I have a, I'm starting to sort of like jive with this theory a bit more. The idea that, um, you know, high intelligent achievers are are if they're unself aware, they they fall into the elephant category. Um, do you know people who are extremely unself aware, like like borderline sociopaths, but they demonstrate self awareness almost like it's a tick, like they've trained themselves to to check the boxes of self awareness. When you meet them, they they ask about you and how you're doing, but they don't give a shit. Um, when they, you know, go through the checkout line, they donate the $1 to kids on reflex. Like, like they have all of these checklists of things that look like they're being self-aware, but you know that like, they don't have a moment of reflection in their day where they're asking what, you know, for themselves. 
it is narcissism, and I know exactly what you mean. Um, you kind of get the feeling. It, you know how you feel about someone. Your, your instincts are always correct, right? <laughs> you get that feeling that they just don't care. But like you said, they're real good at being very polite. They're well aware that they should care. They've had some pain with, in relationships with breakups or people not being their friends anymore or with job losses. So they know they need to work on it, but it's not genuine. Right. So they really just kind of floss in front, and it's pretty insulting if, if you are <laughs> when you know that they're doing it. You got to reach. At least they're trying, though, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, no, I, I give the, the sociopaths who are good at appearing self-aware – they become CEOs. The sociopaths who are not good at appearing self-aware, they go to prison. Like, like that's how we sort them. <laughs> so I like the ones that will at least pretend to be self-aware. It's a high, high or low, low, right? Right, exactly. Um. So um, let's let's you and I learn to be self-aware. I I I genuinely can we before, stop? Can we what? can we stop? Can we stomp and eliminate one cliche saying that you, every um, every Instagram, Facebook post say, we all care about what people think of us. Isn't that true? It isn't that all. I don't care what people think about me. Is that a real thing, Joe? Uh, the only God will judge me uh, mentality? No, I, I don't truck yeah. with that at all because they wouldn't be posting on social media if they didn't care what people thought of them. Like it just, <laughs> like a, a, a true elephant isn't looking around checking to see if people are watching them. Like th- those, I mean, really people on Instagram who are, maybe flirting with narcissism those i categorize as magpies or ants like those are people who they're reflexively being self-aware but they really care a lot about what people think and they're not asking you know they're not asking deep questions themselves there's no reflection there was that too harsh like did you were you going in a different direction no no i like that how do we how do you introspect by the way like you have way more experience with meditation than i do i only started thinking about my own self awareness because of this podcast because we accidentally like we kept searching for answers episode by episode you would ask a question you, like we'd have a, a question like does being cheap make you a bad person or like one of our episodes was um you know do you you know is it better to burn out before you hit your prime like 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 we've had so many weird episodes the answer is always self-awareness like like we accidentally like came up with you know like 70 percent of our episodes the way you overcome these very deep issues in humanity is become self-aware after that yeah, did, you, you ca- did it change how you meditate it did um i have a meditation coach she's in kearney nebraska so i do it remotely with her name's jamie she's amazing um, I started doing yoga, and I'm just ADHD. I, you know, I'm. I, I always look like I'm kind of on drugs. I'm kind of twitchy. You know what I mean? I can't really sit still. I mean, you ride around the car with me. You know how I am, right? Um, and I, it took it took a couple years of working with meditation with Jamie, and just sitting still for an hour really reset my brain, and and it largely start thinking. I think sometimes we get just so busy, and we just get so active that we stop. And we stop thinking. We're just being so reactive. Um, so meditation and anyone who's gone through any kind of addiction or, or trauma, usually, I mean, 100% of the time, 
somewhere in their recovery is meditation as, and it's usually at the top. What do you think the meditation is giving them? I, I guess the, the question I'm going to ask is to, to give you a, a, an insight into the question. Do you think that meditation is giving them self-awareness or do you think meditation is giving them something else? I think it's give, it's getting them aware of what the issues are. I think it's taking a, a, a eraser board and cleaning off a lot of the crap. If that makes sense, if that's not too deep. No, I think that's perfect. That that because the the reason I asked this, it's not a loaded question, but I used to associate meditation. I thought the the path to self awareness was meditation. I I kind of like, looked at like it a, as the old Buddhist monk kind of thing with the tigers and all that kind of. Exactly. I, I thought you had to be like, uh, like sitting under a waterfall with your eyes closed in like a perfect, you know, a perfect sitting position to to get self aware. And I ran into the study we covered on one of our episodes that meditation and introspection doesn't actually help your self-awareness. It actually makes it worse sometimes. Um, People who spent too much time introspecting to get self-awareness, they had higher levels of like stress and depression and they had less reported satisfaction with their lives because they they would... Yeah, they, don't you start getting into that? Doesn't that come, turn into that um, spiral of downward spiral of why me? That's exactly right. Like the, the reason why that they would run into that spiral is because they would try to be self-aware. But what really happened is they would just give themselves a block of meditation time to think about all the bad shit that's happening in their life and why they're not going like doing well at work. So. I'm always, you know what, this this really jogged my memory, and this is something I've noticed, and I think I raised two stepkids, and I, I did an okay job. You know, I'm going to say I, I passed. I certainly wasn't an A, but I have a lot of parental guilt as being a step-parent that I wish I would have spent more time. I wish I would have done this. I wish I wouldn't, wouldn't have done this. I was too tough on this, and I was too easy on this, and I missed all these things. But I, I'm concerned about some of my friends who genuinely um, – and some of the people we work with, who don't have that, they, they they put the blame on other kids or the other parent, everyone. But but it's not a shared blame. And I wonder, yeah. is that a self aware thing? Is, is that a self awareness that you think you're the perfect parent, but nobody else is? Teachers can't teach your husband is a dickhead. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> there um, should be some guilt, some pain. Like I should right. be doing more. What is it? That, um the majority of drivers think they are above average drivers. The majority of parents think they are above <laughs> we average can't, parents. We can't, we can't all be awesome drivers. <laughs> right. But that's that's it. Is I think self-awareness is both knowing your shortcomings or at least being able to judge how you're going to react to shortcomings. And apparently thinking about ourselves isn't knowing ourselves. Like thinking about ourselves oftentimes is just looking into – like like Narcissus, where we're staring into our own reflection, but we're not really thinking about what we could be doing. We're thinking about why me, <laughs> or at the very least, we're thinking about past pain and past trauma. So like reflection and meditation is not self-awareness. It, it is oftentimes a, a good, quiet space to stress about stuff that you did wrong. <laughs> so how do we meditate correctly or how do we do self-awareness right? Um, 
I kind of want to go the, with what's, yeah. What's the real? What's the goal? What is? Uh, what's the prize for being self-aware, Joe? Have you ever thought about that? Um, we okay. So so we had an episode where we talked about um, code switching in class, and we found that journaling about your own values um, has all the benefits. We have talked about like um, grit, like the like the literally the book grit and how optimism just is. Like not just optimism, but like optimism and knowing what you can control and like adapting to it. Like there's all of those fall under the umbrella of self-awareness. So to me, I mean, like like um, social conscientiousness. We had an episode about intelligence where we talked about how intelligence, like very, very high intelligence people in Mensa, it only increases their income by about three percent. Like like your intelligence does not make you rich social conscientiousness made you fabulously rich rich and that's part of self-awareness so like really like this is this episode we're recording right now this is a culmination of like years of todd and i answering questions finding out that self-awareness is always the answer and it turns out self-awareness makes you a better candidate at work you get more bonuses you have better health like you have a better touch on your internal values um instead of basing your values on grades or looks you end up basing your values on you know morals religion like like things that are intrinsic to you so the answer is all of the good things in life happen with self-awareness and it self-awareness can scrub away the bad things like like it i i hate to we at the very very beginning like the first time we ever recorded a podcast i said i do not want to be the secret i hate self-help books most of them are cosmic hokum nonsense that just makes you want to feel good or, or gives you good feelings what we have found is that self-awareness and just a stable understanding of one's values are the real prize and can solve basically everything in your life so this is kind of like the first in a series of podcast episodes where we define self-awareness and, and look at the people who are kind of doing it wrong and how we can adjust that i think too when you become very self-aware you know, or at least higher than you were before, you, you really lighten up on others. You, you're le- least, you're not as a reactive, you're not as critical, but you, you tend to be a lot kinder to yourself too. <laughs> you know, being yes. aware of being aware of things that you're good at and things that you aren't. But things that you're good at are just your core values. Joe's talking about writing, journaling, stuff that you're good at. I think confidence and awareness comes from repetition of doing what's in line with who you truly are. I think that is an incredible way of saying it.